The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trichonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism for the repentance of the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. again, everyone. Thank you for being here this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you through Christ, your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Today is the second Sunday in the season of Advent, and it's an odd time for Christians, very incongruent with the overall mood of the culture around us. Everyone is gearing up for Christmas already. I imagine that you all are already putting up Christmas trees and lights and setting your party and holiday vacation plans, and of course, Christmas shopping. All of that's happening. Then last week we walk in and I preach from a passage that speaks about distress and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea, people fainting with fear and foreboding from what is coming on the world. And what is it that's coming on the world? According to Advent, Jesus is what is coming on the world. Advent focuses our gaze on his second coming. And as I quoted Johnny Cash last week, the man comes around. When the man comes around, the hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? That's Advent. It's like a kidney stone. Seven years ago or so, I went on a run on a Saturday afternoon, came back, was playing basketball with my youngest son, who was only six at the time, when suddenly, out of nowhere, I began to feel a dull pain in my back, in the lower part of my back. It started off dull, but then it became very sharp and severe, like someone was stabbing me with a knife. It wasn't so much a heart attack as a love handle attack, and it hurt to the point where I was on the floor, hands and knees in the living room, writhing in pain, and then throwing up in the bathroom, and I came to find out I had a kidney stone. Alyssa took me to the ER where one of the nurses tried to console me by telling me that she had both given birth and had a kidney stone, and she thought the pain of the kidney stone was worse. I looked at my wife and said, I told you so. And then I asked for an epidural, which she did not give me. But that's Advent, very much like it. It bursts into our lives with in ways that are unexpected and imagined with all its incongruence and its shock and its difficulty and its pain because that's what Jesus' second coming will be like. Distress of the nations in perplexity, roaring of the sea, foreboding, fear. Because Jesus will come and he will end all injustice and all violence. He will confront sin in every person and in every place. 
And he will also call all people to an account for their lives, their relationships with him and with everyone else as well. And so Advent is the time to prepare for that, but how do you prepare for the unexpected and the unimaginable? And where can you find hope when you encounter the unexpected and the unimaginable in life? So three points this morning. The names, the places, and the message of Advent. First of all, the names. Do you notice how historical and personal, how very specific our passage is? It's filled with all these proper names. I'm glad that Josh was reading our gospel reading this morning. 16 names in total, just in four verses. 10 names uh, refer to people. Six of them refer to places. And we, we quickly usually move past these passages, but we shouldn't because they tell us so much about what it's like to live now because our time in history is no different from the history of John's time. History is always like this. It's always filled with names of powerful and important people that hang over us, hang over us and the rest of the world and everyone in it. For example, Tiberius Caesar, arguably the most powerful man in the world at this time. And I wonder if any of you have even heard of his name. He was a particularly cruel and twisted man, one of the most successful military generals in Roman history, but also very deviant in his sexuality, like many social elite in Rome at that time. But he had the power to satisfy his whims and to do so by exploiting others. According to his biographer, he was a notorious pedophile. And some of the things that I've read about him, I can't even begin to mention, it turns your stomach. But needless to say, he abused the weak and he abused the vulnerable. He tortured all sorts of people, servants and enemies alike. He seemed to enjoy pain. He made the death penalty applicable for the smallest of crimes all across the Roman Empire. And he eventually abdicated his throne to focus on indulging his perversions alone on that island of Capri. Tiberius was his name, and everyone knew it. Everyone reviled him, but he's basically forgotten now. The majority of you have never even heard his name, which is a warning to us. It's a warning to every important, powerful person in this world, and to us who give those names so much time, so much emotion, and so much energy. And the warning is, you will be forgotten. You'll become a footnote in history or maybe the subject of some obscure PhD thesis that no one even reads. Advent is not the time for these names. And so friends, don't give them that time. Don't give them that emotion and that energy. Don't give them any more than what they deserve. And beyond Tiberius Caesar, there's Pontius Pilate. And we know of him a little bit more because he's in all the gospel accounts, especially at Jesus's trial. And he's in both of the creeds that we say here in worship. Do you notice his name is always associated with suffering and injustice. And then there's Herod. Herod's an infamous name. We know that. This is not the Herod who was king at Jesus's birth. This is not, that was Herod the Great. This is his son. Herod the Great's the one that slaughtered all the baby boys in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus's birth. This is his son who's best known for beheading John the Baptist and serving his head on a silver platter to his stepdaughter after she danced for him and his drunken buddies like a stripper at a dinner, dinner party. That was this family. They were brutal and depraved and deviant. And lastly, there's two high priests of Israel mentioned. Did you notice that? During the high priesthood, singular, of Annas and Caiaphas. It'd be like saying during the presidency, singular, of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. How's that even possible? 
Well, it's possible because Israel was so utterly politically, culturally, and religiously divided. Uh, One person was made, one man was made high priest, and the rest of Israel didn't want to recognize him. And the point is, it was a chaotic and divisive and fearful and angry time, just like ours. And if God made his presence known then, if God showed up and stepped onto the stage of human history with names like these hanging over the world then, then he can and he will make his presence known now, despite those names that hang over you. Because our, our world is not that much different. Now, I know many of you think it is. Many of you think it's far worse than what it was, that it, we've, we've changed. We're far more morally and culturally lost. And in some ways, maybe that's true, but in comparison to other times, it's not nearly as bad as those times then. The point is, is that there's nothing new under the sun. That's a, a common cliche in our culture, but it's actually a biblical passage. It's the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Our world hasn't really changed that much And neither has God's gracious and unbending commitment to enter into this world and to come to people like you and like me in a time like this with whatever names hang over us. And so what are the names that hang over you right now? Personalize verse one. Replace these names with names of your own. And maybe it's the the name of some political elected official. But maybe it's far more personal and close. Maybe it's the name of an ex-husband or an ex-wife or the name of a a boss or a former boss or a former lover or a former abuser or the name of a child or a coach or a family member. Who are those names? And how long have they reigned over you? How long have you given your time and your energy and your emotion to all of those names? Advent is not their time. Do not allow this time to be their time Join Jesus in making this time his time, the time in which he comes to you. Those are the names of Advent. Here's the place of Advent, point two. The place of Advent is the wilderness. Every year for two weeks, Advent gives us John the Baptist and they, the lectionary gives us John the Baptist in the wilderness always. And every year I think of this quote by Evelyn Underhill. She says, the Christian spiritual life is a stern choice. It is not a consoling retreat from the difficulties of existence, but an invitation to enter fully into them and there apply the love of God to them and to bear the the cost. In other words, this this quote, it points out the difference between the mood and the calling of Advent, the mood and calling of what we call the, the holiday season. Retreating from the difficulties of life and existence, I think is what many people attempt to do at this time of year. Between Thanksgiving and New Year's, they try and put a parentheses around this time, and downplay or disengage, deny, or maybe completely ignore all of the difficulties that are going on in their life and in the world around them and pretend that all is well and to make this time the most wonderful time of the year as we sing, even if it's not. And Advent's not like that. It's like the Christian life described by Evelyn Underhill, not a consoling retreat, not a consoling retreat from the difficulties of existence, but an invitation to fully enter into them and to apply the love of God to them and to bear their cost. And I think about that quote, most Advents, but especially this Advent. It's one of my dear close friends from middle school and high school growing up in Enid, Oklahoma. She lost her son last Saturday. 
He was a senior in high school, and he died while hunting. It wasn't exactly a hunting accident. They actually don't know what happened. His dad was hunting. He was hunting in a different place. His dad hadn't heard from him for a while, so he went to where his son was and and found him dead. It wasn't a gunshot wound. There were no signs of trauma. They still don't know what happened. They're doing an autopsy to try and figure out what happened. But can you imagine that? Imagine being that father, walking up on your son that way, having to tell your wife, having to, having to tell his siblings, the entire family. How do you deal with something that unexpected and that unimaginable? I, I can't imagine anything worse. But a consoling retreat from the difficulties of an existence isn't an option for them. It's not. They have to enter fully into that pain and to apply the love of God in Christ to that situation. And so too do many of you right now in what you face. You have to make that same stern choice. All of us will at some point. And that's why Advent gives us John the Baptist and gives us John the Baptist in the wilderness. This man and this place don't just begin Advent. They actually begin all of the gospels. All of the gospels don't begin with Jesus's birth. Only two of them do. All of the gospels, however, begin with John in the wilderness. So in other words, to get to Jesus, either in the scriptures or in Advent, you have to go through John, this strange, austere, off-putting man in his stern choice, which is essentially this. Stay as you are or change. Stay as you are, where you are, comfortable as you are with your own moral, personal status quo and your same schedule and your same routine, with your same unchallenged, undeveloped beliefs, stay wherever it is easiest and safest for you in that place where you need as little from God as possible. Stay there as you are or change and acknowledge your need of God and your need of more of him and more from him and embrace that change that he requires and that he brings when he comes. That's John's choice. And John is only found in the wilderness. So what is the wilderness? Well, the wilderness, as I've told you, it's not a vacation destination. We may hear wilderness and we may think beautiful places, beautiful trees, Colorado, Montana, beautiful, breathtaking views with giant evergreen or aspen trees that that turn a beautiful yellow hue in the fall, places of beauty and rest where worries, anxieties magically sort of slip away and, and we relax a little bit more. It's not the wilderness. A better translation is probably desert because desert is a place of hunger where where plants don't grow. The desert grows thorns, thistles, not crops. And few animals are in the desert. And the animals that are in the desert, you don't eat them. They eat you. And then it's also a place of exposure because there's nothing to build shelter. You have to live in caves if you're there at all. It's also a place of thirst, obviously. There's very little water and it's a lonely place. Because the desert isn't a place that can sustain many people and build big communities, so you're alone there. So hungry, thirsty, exposed, and alone, that's the desert. And bottom line, the wilderness is a place where life ends unless God shows up and provides what is necessary for you to continue on and gives you the food and the shelter, the community that you need. And my friend who's lost her son, that's where she is right now. That's where she is. She's in the wilderness. And so too some of you, because your marriage has taken you into the wilderness, or one of your children and their needs has taken you into the wilderness, or a particular diagnosis or an addiction or the pandemic 
pandemic has taken so many people into this place or rejection from someone that you thought was a friend was really betrayal or not getting the job or not getting the grades or not getting the score or not getting into the school or not getting onto that team or to that squad or not being respected or not feeling appreciated or not being married or not being pregnant. Whatever it may be, you're hungry, you're exposed, vulnerable and thirsty and all alone or at least feeling all alone. And Advent would say, good, good. Because listen, friends, the Bible teaches over and over again that the wilderness is a terrible place. It's a terrible place, but it is the place where change occurs. Jacob wrestles with God in the wilderness. And Joseph goes into the wilderness in Egypt when he goes to Egypt. And when Israel leaves Egypt, they go into the wilderness. Joshua is in the wilderness before entering Jericho. David runs from Saul in the wilderness. Elijah hides from Jezebel in the wilderness. And John the Baptist is only and always in the wilderness. The wilderness is a terrible place. It is the place of the unexpected and the unimaginable, but it is the place that change occurs because it's in the wilderness where especially God shows up and meets people. In the wilderness, we lose everything, but we meet God. And here's the message that we hear. It's the message of Philippians 1, chapter 6, which is our epistle reading, where Paul says, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, the names that hang over you in the wilderness-like place that you find yourself currently, they in no way negate this primary Advent promise. In fact, the names and the places are a part of the means by which God does this, that he completes his work in you. They aren't signs of his absence, they're tools of his work. Tiberius, Herod, Pilate, they're tools, tools of God's work, means by which he, he completes his work. And the wilderness, your current wilderness, it's an opportunity for God to especially come close to you and actually be received by you because now you know, now having been there with those names hanging over you, now you know, now you feel the hunger and the thirst and the exposure and the loneliness that this world inevitably leads you with. Tim Keller who many of you know or know of, pastor, theologian, one of the greatest Christian voices in the world in this generation, he has pancreatic cancer. And this past spring, he wrote an article in The Atlantic about his diagnosis and his cancer, talking about it. He entitled it, "My Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. And in this article, he tells about how he published a book about what it is like to die as a Christian called On Death, just less than one month before he received his diagnosis. And in this article, he says, while all of us in New York City were trying to protect ourselves from COVID-19, I learned that I already had an agent of death growing inside me. I spent a few harrowing minutes looking online at the dire survival statistics for pancreatic cancer and caught a glimpse of On Death, my book, on a table nearby. I didn't dare open it to read what I had written. My wife, Kathy, and I spent much time in tears and disbelief. Kathy said, I thought we'd feel a lot older when we got to this age. We had plenty of plans and lots of comforts, especially our children and grandchildren. 
And then he goes on to talk about the various spiritual practices and disciplines that he took on in this time in order to more fully lean into the pain and the sadness and to move through it, to apply the love of God to it. And then this realization hit him. He says, since my diagnosis, Kathy and I have come to see that the more we tried to make a heaven out of this world, the more we grounded our comfort and security in this world, the less we were able to enjoy it. When we turn good things into ultimate things, when we make them our greatest consolations and loves, they will necessarily disappoint us bitterly. To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things, from sun on the water and flowers in the vase, to our embraces, sex, and conversation, bring more joy than ever. This has taken us by surprise. I can sincerely say without any sentimentality or exaggeration that I've never been happier in my life, that I've never had more days filled with comfort. Now, how is it possible to say that? How is it possible to write those words? It's possible because Tim Keller and Kathy are in the wilderness and God has come to them there with the message that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The unimaginable, unexpected, they don't negate the message. The message transforms them into God's tools for our redemption. You know, these names were the names that crucified Jesus. These are the names. And the cross was the greatest wilderness experience that anyone has ever known. Jesus on the cross, all alone, hungry, fully and completely exposed, not just physically, but spiritually and thirsting. He cried out, I thirst. And what did he thirst for? for the love and the presence of God the Father that he had always known but lost in that moment, that had been taken away and replaced with the wrath of God for our sin, the consequences of our sin, him bearing that, that he might forgive us and that he might be raised from that death in order to come to us now in our wilderness, whatever it may be, and to assure us, to assure each and every one of you that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so join him. As John cries out, remove any obstacle that prevents his coming to you. Whatever is too high, whatever it is that's that's raised too high and loved too much in your hearts, whatever it is that you expect too much out of in this world, remove it, tear it down. And whatever is too low, whatever is loved too little, whatever is looked down upon by you that's truly good, raise it up. Make Jesus's path to you as straight and as level as possible because he comes and he comes to complete his work. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would make that which is low high and that which is high low and that which is crooked straight, that you by your spirit would give us the grace to be able to do that so that we might receive you well. We thank you for your first coming. We thank you for your second coming, Lord Jesus. And we look forward to the ways in which you come to us now and pray that we would be ready to receive you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.